All right, Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, and this evening we're in verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sitting deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Lord, your word has oftentimes brought us in the past sobering words of warning, and tonight is no different. We pray, Lord, that when we go through this warning that we would heed it for ourselves, believing that there go we but by the grace of God, and understanding that every single one of these words is for people in your church. So we don't take it lightly, and we certainly don't want to take away from the impact that this is supposed to have on us. So, Lord, take the words here from your book and make them living truths in our lives. In your name, amen. I was at one of those Bible studies where everybody gets to, when you read the passage, say, what do you think about this? They are painful, those things. Well, we were going through the book of Hebrews, and we were just about to chapter 6, and I thought, this is where this Bible study jumps the rails, and we end up with all manner of problems, and it didn't happen, oddly enough. And so I thought, well, the rest of the book of Hebrews is going to be great. There's not going to be much controversy. Oh, little did I know. (laughs) We got to this specific text right here that we're looking at, and the Bible study jumped to the tracks, and there was all kinds of angry, heated discussion and debate, and you know I wasn't any part of any of that. (laughs) People walked away from there frustrated and concerned. I think one guy never ever came back again after that particular study and I think it was because that he, like so many modern American evangelicals that I have been running into and helps to be in a Christian college online class because you see all manner of weirdness and yet you also see a broad spectrum of evangelicalism and 
to just about a person, they have fallen into this, well, God is love. He would never do anything harsh. He would never have a hard word for you. He's always encouraging. He wants the best for you. And doggone it, all you just got to do is know that and you're going to be great. The God of Scripture, though, is different than that. The God of Scripture, like we read in Psalm chapter 50 for our call to worship this morning, or this evening, pardon me. He says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Everything is mine. I don't eat the flesh or drink the blood of bulls and goats. Offer to God instead a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon him in the day of trouble and then he will deliver to you. But to the wicked, he says, what right have you to recite my statutes? Or how dare you take my covenant upon your lips? You cast my words behind you. You see a thief and you're pleased with him. And you keep company with adulterers. Mark this, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there will be none who delivers you. This is a God who is very serious and very concerned about his own worship. He's very careful and very sure to have presented in Scripture exactly how he wants to be worshipped. And he holds every single individual accountable to worship God accordingly. And if we don't, then we are presuming to worship either another God or presuming to think we know better than God and coming to God in a self-styled manner of worship, neither of which God is pleased with. And so when we come to a text like this, it is definitely important for us as Christians to take it very seriously. He has just said in the previous passage, he said, now let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works and not neglecting to meet together as has been the habit of some, but encouraging one another All the more as you see the day, the second coming, drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, meaning that if you are not in the regular habit of being in fellowship together in the context of the church, stirring one another up to love and good works, you are not gathering together and assembling together for the worship of Almighty God, then you are doing something else And therefore, you are worshiping something other than the true and living God, which is why this warning comes on the heels of make sure you keep gathering together and keep worshiping together. Now, warnings are all throughout the book of Hebrews. We've seen them already. In fact, if you want to look at a couple of them in the beginning of chapter 2, There was a great one where it says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message that we received was declared by angels and proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how will we escape, we, 
If we neglect so great a salvation. In chapter 3, in verse 12, he writes, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Instead, exhort one another while it is today, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's similar language to the passage we're looking at right now. Why do we need warning? Why, why, as the church, why do we need warnings like this? What's the point of them? He says in chapter 2, if we neglect so great a salvation, the writers including himself. He says in chapter 3, brethren, including himself and everybody that he's writing to. Here in our passage in verse 26, it says, if we go on sinning deliberately, so again he's including himself. Well, if we really believe the things that we do about God's calling and his election and assurance and limited atonement and all of those kind of things, then why in the world do we have here in texts like this such harsh warnings that sound like if you don't keep on doing right, you're going to go to hell and you're going to burn with judgment and a fury of fire. That's what it sounds like, right? So what do we as good Bible-believing, born-again Christians do with this passage? Well, Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 13. You remember in Matthew 13 what Jesus is doing there is he's talking to a group of people and he is giving a, a whole bunch of parables. Bing, 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 bing. And he says at the beginning of him doing this, he says, now I'm speaking to you in parables because I don't want most of you to understand. And he actually quotes Isaiah chapter 6, where God tells Isaiah upon his commission, yeah, you're going to go to the people and you're going to speak my word, but they're not going to hear you, they're not going to listen, and they're not going to turn and repent. And Jesus quotes that passage from Isaiah 6, in reference to his parables and what he is telling everybody who's listening is I'm telling parables to make my teachings harder to understand, not easier to understand. That's confusing in and of itself for a lot of people. But good thing is that several of these parables Jesus gives interpretation. And this one that I want to look at right now, specifically, he does give an interpretation. It's the parable of the weeds, or we might call it the wheat and the tares, if you will. Jesus puts another parable out to them, and he says, Well, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who went out into his field and sowed good seed. But while his men were sleeping... The enemy came, and he sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. When the plants came up and bore grain, even the weeds then appeared also. Well, the servant of the master came to him and said, Master, you sowed good seed, didn't you, in the field? How then does it have weeds? He said, an enemy has done this. So the servant said, well, how about if we go out and remove the weeds? 
And he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them together in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and put it into my barn. He explains the parable in verses 36 through 43 of that chapter. You can read it later on, but let me sum up. The weeds are those within the church. He said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. There are those within the church that the enemy has sown that live, that are vibrant, that look healthy within the life of the church. And there are those who are true wheat stalks within the life of the church as well. And the Lord is allowing them both to grow together up, even in the midst of his church. One of the things that warnings do is, in having its effect, in being effectual, is they encourage the good, healthy grain to grow more stronger and more fervent. As we hear the warning, we heed the warning, we listen to it, we pray, Father, give me the strength by your Holy Spirit to not fall into this sinning deliberately kind of lifestyle, and we grow thereby. The ones who are the enemies of the Lord or the terrors or the weeds within the body of Christ, they will hear warnings and they won't heed it at all. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to leave the church. Some will. It might mean that they stay within the church and they actually become harder and harder and harder and harder. And the more they hear the word of God, the worse that they get. But warnings are effectual. In fact, you know, there are two Old Testament passages that point this out. Um, First of all, positively, and second of all, negatively. So positively, if you turn to Jonah, you might have to sing that little ditty in your head to remember where Jonah is, but it's right before Micah. So just kind of flip over a few pages. It's not very far away from Matthew chapter 13 there. As you're turning there, I'm going to start in chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, and the God told him, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So Jonah began to go into the city, and in a day's journey in, he began to call out. This is his message. This is what God tells him to say. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's a warning, isn't it? That's a a call of judgment if there ever was one. You have forty days and God is going to destroy you. Well... People of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Now the word even reached the king of Nineveh himself. And he arose from his throne and he removed his robe and he covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it all throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let there neither be man nor beast nor flock nor herd that tastes anything 
not food, not drink, but let man, but let that everyone turn from his evil ways and call out to the mighty God and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They didn't even know. They had no assurance, but they heard the warning, they heeded the warning, and it was effectual. He goes on to say that God, in fact, heard what they did and saw what they did, and God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not bring it. Now, it sounds like, you know, God said he's going to do one thing, they responded, and so God's like, oh, okay, just, you guys are so cute, kind of thing. No, warnings are effectual. God intended for that to take place, and God intended for them to turn and repent. We see behind the scenes every once in a while in Scripture this kind of thing taking place. In fact, our next passage, the negative aspect of warnings happening, we see behind the curtain and we see how God does not want somebody to heed a warning. In fact, turn there, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2. First Samuel 2 beginning in verse 22. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing that his sons were doing, what were his sons were doing in Israel. How they were laying with women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He said to them, why do you do such things? I hear of your evil doings from all of the people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear from the people. The Lord, or pardon me, from the people that the Lord is spreading abroad. If someone sins against man, well, God will mediate for him. But if you sin against the Lord, who can intercede for him? That's a warning. That's a powerful one, isn't it? Why are you doing this? Don't you know you're sinning against God? If you sin against somebody else, fine, God will mediate and forgive that. But if you are found to be sinning against God himself in the very place where he is set aside for his holy worship, what are you going to do? Look at what the next verse says. But they would not listen to the voice of their father for... It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. That's a spine shiverer. They did not listen. It looks like from all outward appearances that they were simply making a decision. Ah, we're not going to listen to you, old man. But we see behind the scenes, we see behind the curtain, we see God telling us that it was the will of God that these sons be put to death, not that they would turn and respond. Now, I can go all throughout the Old Testament and give you story after story after story after story of warnings that are effectual both positively and effectual negatively. And we can see God working in both of them. So we have this taking place all throughout scripture for God's covenant people. 
So it shouldn't surprise us as believers when we come to the book of Hebrews and we find warnings for the church. He said there's going to be weed and tares. We see this is the way he's functioned all throughout history. So this kind of a passage shouldn't shock us, even though oftentimes it does for Christians. You know, one of my favorite passages is 1 John chapter 3, right? And there, just after my favorite part of 1 John, it says this in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now you know that Jesus appeared to take away sins and that in him is no sin. No one who abides in him, in Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning either has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning, and the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. You see, by this it is evident who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. A couple of things here. We see very similar language in 1 John chapter 3 as we see here in our passage. Look what it says for in verse 26 of Hebrews 10. If we go on sinning deliberately, right? Very similar. If you make a practice of sinning, make a habit of sinning, After receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. First thing, the Bible is not under any type of illusion or misunderstanding that Christians are supposed to be perfect. That's not the point of either one of these passages at all. But the point is, is what is our regular lifestyle? What do we regularly live consistently in light of? Do we live consistently in light of sin? Do we live in a manner where we've turned our back on God? Or do we live in a way where we're seeking righteousness and when we sin, we confess and ask for forgiveness, which the book of 1 John also talks a lot about. So there's no sinless perfection in view here. What we are talking about is where are our hearts at? Is our heart one where we want to follow the Lord and follow righteousness and follow his way? Or are we one who is maybe flirting around with things of the church, but really inside we're full of dead men's bones like the Pharisees were? So when we come to our passage and it says, if we go on sinning deliberately after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now he gives us an Old Testament illustration, which I just did as well. 
Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So like 1 John said, sin is lawlessness. If even somebody who is in the church could be a member of the church, could be a deacon or an elder even in the church, but if they live in a habitual pattern of sin and they keep on going down that road, they're living in lawlessness. The illustration the writer of Hebrews gives is lawlessness under the old covenant deserved death. And all it took was two or three witnesses to verify that that person had sinned and was living in that kind of sin for judgment to come from the government, from the institution that God had set up there for the person to die and be punished. And his argument is, if this was true under the old covenant, why in the world would anything be different under the new covenant? In fact, it should be worse, don't you think, under the new covenant than it was the old. Because the old was types and the old was shadows. But we have the fullness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So, if we know this is Jesus Christ, we see him for who he is, we understand all of the things that he is claiming to be, we acknowledge those things mentally and maybe even emotionally, and yet we turn our back, he goes on to say, how much worse punishment do they deserve? Now the question that we ask ourselves, first of all, is what is this sinning deliberately? And there's three things. He tells us here there are three things that consist, at least in the writer's mind as he's writing this, of sinning deliberately. Number one is in verse 29 there. It says that they trampled underfoot the Son of God. They trampled underfoot the Son of God. It, it's a vivid picture. I was at a concert one time many, many long years ago. <laughs> and we were at UCLA in the basketball um, arena there. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But it was foolishly general admission. And so what that means is there's no assigned seating, right? It means if you're in the front of the line, you get to just book it on down there and hope you don't fall down the steps and get up right to the front of the stage. And so, of course, it was a mob. <laughs> Everyone was pushing and shoving. And as soon as those doors opened up, Oh, it was a frenzy, and everybody was running and shoving each other. People were falling down and getting trampled on. And when we got up to the front, I happened to be one of the pusher and shovers, I'll admit. <laughs> when we got up to the front, though, the swell kept coming and coming and coming and pushing, and there was nothing we could do, and we were all just huddled against one another like we were going to be crushed. And everyone started screaming, and girls are yelling, and guys are crying, and it's, it's, it's awful. A fire marshal had to come in and say, we're not having the concert unless everybody backs up, and it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. That was the closest thing I can imagine to being trampled underfoot. People were stepped on. Nobody died that I remember, but it was awful. It was scary. And what this communicates to me as I remember back on that event is a lack of regard for the dignity of everybody else in the crowd. All I cared about was myself. 
I didn't care about anyone else in that moment. And I was going to trample on and push past anybody I had to to get where I wanted to go. That's the imagery here. This person is sinning deliberately in the way that they are willing to be so self-centered and so selfish that they disregard the very Son of God. And if they have to get out of the church to do so, they're going to trample over him on their way out. The second thing that he gives us in terms of an idea of what this sinning deliberately is, is in the next phrase in that sentence, that they profane the blood of the covenant. They profane the blood of the covenant. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed for our sins. One of the most sacred acts that we do as Christians is partake of the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper, every single time we gather together and partake of it, reminds us of the cost that Christ paid that we might be secure in him and our salvation might be won by him. His blood was shed for us. If we turn our backs on the true and living God and continue to sin deliberately, denying him, walking away from him, not seeing him as the great and glorious savior that he is, then we profane the blood of Christ in such a way that there is no hope for us to continue on. One little side note, here the next phrase, it says, by which he was sanctified. Now there are several ways people have looked at this text. One of them is that the one who is trampling underfoot and the one who has profaned the covenant was at one point sanctified by that blood. But there's actually a better way to interpret this, that the he is actually Jesus himself. That Jesus was sanctified, set apart as the only savior by his blood being shed for the fulfillment of the new covenant. In fact, that's a better way to read it in Greek, so I'm told by people who know Greek. In English, it makes sense as I read it and I look at the text here. So in my personal opinion, I think that this is Christ who is sanctified and that that makes it even much worse that you're profaning the blood that Christ himself was sanctified by. But anyways, the third thing that is given to us in terms of sinning deliberately is that you have outraged the spirit of grace. Could there be two more opposite words than grace and outrage? There's very little grace when I am outraged, right? Now, simple, silly illustration. I come home from work. I have told my kids that morning, when I get home from work, I expect the dishes to be done, I expect the trash to be taken out, I expect the kitchen to be swept, right? Not unreasonable requests. But when I come home and those aren't done, there is a certain sense where I'm going to be outraged. Now don't misunderstand me, I'm not like berserker and have lost control of my senses and my actions. But I'm going to be Outrage. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be upset. There is no grace in my actions that follow. Right? Here, the Holy Spirit is actually called the Spirit of Grace. What does it take for you to outrage 
the Holy Spirit when He is the Spirit of grace. It takes you disregarding the Son of God in such a way that you are willing to go to your own ends and extremes to the point of even trampling Him under your feet. It takes you looking at the blood of the new covenant that was given and shed on your behalf so that you might be saved and looking at that thing as something that was insignificant and inferior. In fact, going so far as to rejecting that as your sacrifice for sins, thus profaning it, that's what it takes to outrage the spirit of grace. So if we go on sinning deliberately, if you have trampled the Son of God under the foot, if you're profaning the blood of the new covenant, and you're outraging the spirit of grace, how dare you or who do you think you are to think that there remains a sacrifice of sins for you? Now we might ask, well, where do we see this? Okay, I I get the teaching here. I get the sword rattling but I mean, that's what's going on here, right? It's a warning. I mean, this doesn't, it doesn't really happen. Well, we have a clear example in Scripture of someone this actually happened to. And I think if it happened to him, and we see who it is, and we look at the church, and if this person was able to commit this kind of sin deliberately then it should be a sober warning to anybody within the church, wherever they are, whoever they are, that yes, this in fact could be you. Beware and be wise. And of course, I'm speaking of Judas. In John chapter 6, you know the end of that lengthy section that we love to look at regularly. They were confounded about the things that he said. And many of the disciples who heard what Jesus had said turned their backs and quit following Jesus. So Jesus said to them, do you take offense at this? What are you going to do when the Son of Man is ascending to where he was before? And the Spirit who gives life, the flesh, (coughs) pardon me, It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. But the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew who they were from the beginning who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. So he looked at the twelve and he said, do you want to go away as well? And there's an opportunity for Judas to leave if he wanted to at this point. However, he stays and Simon says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And so Jesus answered them and said, did I not choose you all of the twelve? But yet one of you is the devil. And he spoke of Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. Well, Judas maybe didn't know at that particular point what was coming, but when we get to the institution of the Lord's Supper there on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus says these words of him. One of you is going to betray me. They all said, Lord, is it I? He said, it's he who dips his hand with me who will betray me. And the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man who is betrayed. Listen, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas said, is it me, Rabbi? 
And he said, you have said so. Jesus' commentary of Judas is that it would actually have been better for him if he had never been born, but God's glory is greater than Judas' existence. And it was vital and important for Judas to exist so that God receives greater glory. This is the consternation that people have with a passage like this. It's why some people, like I said at the beginning, after going through a passage like this, throw their hands up and go, if this is the God of the Bible, I don't know if I want to worship him. And of course our answer is, we know. We know. But our encouragement doesn't end there. Our encouragement is, keep on keeping on. Don't deny him. Don't continue to go down that road. If you're having difficulty with this, then let's talk about it together and pray about these things because these things are clearly what Scripture teaches. And if these things are so, what we don't want for any individual is for it to come at the end of time and God to say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and the Lord is going to judge his people because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We have a living God. And we know that when we read in scripture of him in these kind of categories that we can't take it lightly. We should definitely pray about these things for our own heart. I know I have all week long (laughs) been wrestling with this text in my own life. Because I know my heart. But I also know one thing is that I do desire righteousness. I do desire the Lord and I do desire to follow his ways. And I know, Lord, if this is true, this warning, and I know it is, and it's effectual, and I know it is, Lord, then may it do its good work and force me right back into your arms. Beloved, that's what this warning should do for you today. And if it does anything else other than that, you need to do some serious heart evaluation because we should see this and say, Lord, keep me from this. May I just be right near you, sensitive and tender, my conscience not hardened by these things, but yet ready and willing to submit and to follow your ways and your truth because I do know that you are good and faithful and yet you are a consuming fire. And Lord, I do not ever want to fall on that side of your attributes, but rather I want to be right here near the spirit of grace, covered by the blood of the covenant, saved by the Son of God. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we know, Lord, that without them, we have no hope, we have no life, we have no salvation. But with them, Lord, we have everything that consists for life and godliness. And so I pray that as we hear even a text like this that has been difficult for people to understand and to follow, Lord, that we would receive these words with a heart that is eager to follow you in your ways, that's eager to repent of sin, that's eager to submit to you and to see you as the most precious and most glorious of all beings, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.